screening patients when they come in for chemotherapy or screening them when they're admitted to hospital looking for nutritional problems and if they have them then trying to refer them down a pathway where they get good nutritional care in conjunction with their medical care we're trying to optimize their health really um, because we know that's linked with better quality of life better tolerance to treatment and ultimately better survival you're listening to the patient voice in cancer research fireside chat podcast The Patient Voice in Cancer Research is an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. This podcast series deals with the topics that matter most to people on their cancer journey. What does the research tell us? We bring together patients and researchers to answer the tough questions. In episode five, we look at diet and nutrition for cancer patients. Patient advocate Tom Hope chats with Dr. Aoife Ryan, a senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at University College Cork. Also joining the conversation today is Dr. Amy Malee, a researcher and lecturer in human nutrition at the Institute of Technology, Sligo. This episode is introduced by Amanda McCann, professor and senior Conway fellow in UCD, who leads the Patient Voice in Cancer Research Initiative. Good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome to our fifth PVC or Farside Chat. I hope the weather is as lovely with you as it is here uh, in Dublin. Uh, Thank you again for for joining us uh, for this event. This evening, our topic is eating well on the cancer journey. And we're going to hear about the clarity around the roles and the differential roles between nutritionists and dietitians. We're going to hear about research on dietary recommendations to combat uh, muscle loss uh, during chemotherapy. And we're also going to talk a little bit about misinformation and disinformation around diet and a cancer diagnosis. We have two wonderful speakers tonight that Tom is going to introduce to us. Tom has been a member of the Patient Voice and Cancer Research Committee since 2016. He is a retired accountant and father of three from County Meath. Tom was diagnosed with prostate cancer aged 62 years and is still on active surveillance. He is part of the Irish Cancer Society's peer-to-peer support service and also volunteered as a driver, bringing cancer patients to hospital for chemotherapy. He is secretary, treasurer of Men Against Cancer, a prostate cancer support group and patient representative on the NCCP's Prostate Update Guidelines Development Group. He also, in relation uh, to this evening's discussion, has shared with us uh, that he has a sweet tooth. So I'm very happy now to pass over to Tom, who will facilitate and MC the rest of this evening's Farsight Chat. Tom, thank you very much. Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much, Amanda, and thank you very much for the box of sweets you sent me. I really appreciate them. I'll have them them later. It gives me great pleasure to to introduce our, our two guest speakers this evening, Dr. Aoife Ryan and, and Amy Mully. Aoife is, is a senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics in University College Cork. She's a registered dietitian with um, a PhD from Trinity College. Her PhD project looked at nutrition in patients with cancer in the upper digestive tract. She has 20 years of experience both in the laboratory and in hospital clinic looking at the area of diet and nutrition in cancer. At the moment, EFA's research programme at UCC focuses on the effect of cancer 
and nutritional status. Her main projects look at the impact of weight loss and loss of muscle strength on the quality of life, toxicity um, to chemotherapy treatment and survival, the role of nutrition in, in preventing and treating cancer and developing and testing new nutritional supplements and tube feeds to tackle weight loss and cancer. That's a hell of a program, I can tell you, Aoife. It's sort of, I'm gobsmacked. I don't know how you get time to, to sleep with that type of a challenge ahead of you. As well as publishing more than 40 scientific papers, Aoife is the author of five award-winning cookbooks for cancer patients. Dr. Amy Mully is, is a researcher and lecturer in human nutrition in IT Sligo. Amy previously worked at UCD, the International Agency for Research on Cancer and the World Cancer Research Fund International. Her research focuses on the role of diet in the, in the, in the healing aging, including the relationship between nutrition and cancer. With that type of background, we're going to get a very interesting discussion this evening. And I'd like to ask Aoife to, to give us a sort of a, a brief overview on her view on the topic of eating well, on the cancer journey before we get into your questions. And please get the questions into us so we can um, have the, have them to, to get the answers. Okay, Aoife, over to you. Thanks, Tom. Um, so hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the webinar this evening. Um, I'll just give you three minutes on my, my take on nutrition and cancer. So as a dietitian, and I worked as a clinical dietitian for eight years in the field of oncology and patients having surgery for, for cancer, um, I think there's kind of two main journeys patients can go down in terms of nutrition. There's a group of patients who do reasonably well on treatment, on chemotherapy, surgery. They might lose their appetite slightly. They may or may not lose small amounts of weight. They may be a bit nauseous, but they recover quite quickly and don't tend to have that, that many bad things happen to them from a nutritional perspective. And some of those patients maybe might complain of gaining some weight on treatment, particularly if they've been given steroids. The other group, and I suppose the group that I'm most passionate about and what my research focus is in, is in patients um, who develop huge problems with eating and nutrition during, during cancer treatment. And um, so patients who develop cancers of their head and neck, throat, esophagus, stomach, lung, it doesn't have to be in the gut, um, but patients who really struggle with poor appetite and lose weight without trying and particularly lose lots of muscle. Um, and my research group in UCC is very interested in understanding the changes that happen in people's bodies in terms of their muscle mass during treatment and how that then impacts on how they tolerate chemotherapy, tolerate surgery, what their quality of life is like, and also how, does ch how do changes in muscle mass impact on survival. And um, so that's kind of my, my, my take on nutrition and cancer. I think there's kind of two roads you can go down, one really tough road with eating and, and swallowing and drinking and one not so bad road. And there's obviously different advice depending on, on which, which path you're on. Okay, Aoife, thank you very much. Amy, over to you. Hi, and um, thank you for having me here tonight. Um, I'm really glad to be joining you all on the webinar. So yeah, as Tom said, my name is Amy. And my background is that as a nutritionist, slightly different to what the role of a dietitian would be. I'm primarily involved in the research area, so the behind the scenes um, part. And for me, um, what's really important is really understanding um, the quality of research and the importance of carrying out good quality research to inform practice and also the guidelines that we're able to give to you to help you on your cancer journey. So um, for 
for me, it's really important that we're able to support people to get good quality um, information that's evidence-based. And I know it's really difficult as a patient, but also as a person, we're constantly striving to have a healthy diet and we hear all sorts of information that can be really difficult uh, to differentiate between what is a uh, good quality information and what could potentially um, have, have a detrimental effect on, on our health. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eva and Amy. Uh, and to, to start to start the ball rolling, I have, I have a question here. What is the research evidence that diet and nutrition support are valuable as part of the cancer treatment plan? Um, maybe I'll throw that to you, Aoife, first. If you look at, the, at all of the scientific evidence we have of what happens to patients when they get cancer, is that a large majority while on treatment will, will at some point lose some weight. So that can often be the first red flag that they will go to a GP with and say, look, my clothes are getting a bit, little bit looser, maybe my appetite isn't great, and they will be investigated and possibly diagnosed um, as having cancer. And so really the role in then supporting those patients and what the evidence would show from the research is that if we can try and um, get patients to try and eat as well as they can on treatment and try and maintain their weight, whatever their weight is. It doesn't matter if they're a little bit overweight. We, we always try and maintain their weight on cancer treatment as much as possible um, and try and keep them as active as we can. I know that fatigue is a massive problem for many patients with cancer. So trying to get them to stay physically active as well can help maintain their muscle mass. And we know that those patients who are weight-stable live much longer and do much better and tolerate their treatment much, much better than patients who deteriorate nutritionally um, during cancer treatment. So much of the evidence that we've accumulated on the clinical side of things is, you know, screening patients when they come in for chemotherapy or screening them when they're admitted to hospital looking for nutritional problems. And if they have them, then trying to refer them down a pathway where they get good nutritional care in conjunction with their medical care. So we're trying to optimize their health really um, because we know that's linked with better quality of life, better tolerance to treatment and ultimately better survival. And, and Aoife, in relation to that, how, how easy it is or, or what do you find the thing? You know, in most cases, patients on, on, a, on a, cancer, a cancer journey are more preoccupied with, with the medical treatment than, than, than diet. And it's a question of how do you get them to focus on, on both? Because one supports the other in, in the sense, where can, where can they sort of turn to, to, get, to get sort of support for that? Because their oncologist will sort of deal with their treatment and the oncology nurse will, 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 will help them in understanding the treatment. But the diet, as you quite rightly say, is an important part of the process and it needs to need help or support in that. Where, where, where can they look for that? Yeah, nutrition's often overlooked. You're right, doctors and nurses are extremely busy. I'm married to an oncologist and he's he's never home. <laughs> he's gone 14 hours a day. We don't ever see him. So his clinics are packed. He's extremely busy. You know, there could be 30, 35, 40 people booked into one public clinic. So patients don't get a lot of time with their oncologists and their doctors. Of course, they see the nurses all the time as well, but the nurses are also extremely busy. So um, what, what, one thing that does happen to patients though a lot on treatment is that they're usually way a lot. I don't know if you found that yourself, but certainly if you're on chemotherapy, um, you'll be weighed at every clinic visit and they'll document it in your notes um, because often a lot, a lot of the chemotherapy drugs that are used are dosed depending on your weight, your weight and height. So uh, patients are often weighed and so they can keep an, keep an eye on it themselves, but often they tell us that nutrition and diet can, tends to get overlooked by the medical team because the focus is entirely on you know the treatments and that, which of course is correct, but um, often patients feel 
a little bit differently. They, they would put a lot of importance on nutrition and diet because I guess it's the one thing they have control over. They've no control over the disease or the, the treatments or the surgeries. Often they don't understand a lot of the information they're being given, but everybody has to eat so that they can take control of that. And people often go online, do Google searches, and that's where all the myths and misinformation and depending on what site you land on, you can get a whole load of, of different information. So um, my research is obviously focused on looking at body composition and um, but and, and we write in scientific papers as does Amy so we publish our research in scientific journals that patients would normally never get to see and um, so we try to produce a number of resources in UCC which I can show you they're free for patients they're, they're sponsored by Breakthrough Cancer Research to give them some ideas of how to translate um, translate the scientific guidelines into what to cook for dinner or what to cook for lunch if you're on treatment of course you can also access the dietitian there's a dietitian affiliated with uh, every medical oncologist in the country. So if you're having problems, you should always ask to be referred and seen. Um, but in the absence of that, obviously there's not a whole lot of dietitians. We might come back to that later. There are a series of books available. So this free book um, is published, we published a few years ago. It's called Good Nutrition for Cancer Recovery. Um, it's got about 50, 60 recipes in it. It's all everyday meals, but they're kind of energy and protein dense easy to make. There's nothing fancy here for like dinner parties around things. This is everyday, everyday eating. And um, we printed 20,000 copies of that and it was so popular. Um, it's out of print now, but we've just literally signed off on the second edition of it, which will, will be better, I hope. And that'll be available this summer. Um, there's another book as well that we did. Again, it's available for free through the HSE. It's called Making the Most of Every Bite. So this is again for patients who are maybe struggling with appetite, struggling with eating, um, can't face food, can't face a main meal, um, might be nauseous, vomiting. Um, there's a whole load of ideas there. They're all kind of small portion sizes, but energy and protein dense. Um, we have one for swallowing difficulties as well. Again, this is these are all available for free through your hospital or through Breakthrough Cancer Research. This is called Eating Well with Swallowing Difficulties in Cancer, and it's for patients who have head and neck cancers or esophageal cancers where they have to change the texture of the food that they eat sometimes it might be on liquidized diets or pureed diets, et cetera. And we're in the process of updating this as well. And there'll be um, a whole load of new books coming out this summer, a book for each different texture. Um, so those are all kind of the ones that are available for patients who are struggling eating or struggling swallowing. And then for patients that are doing okay, they have a perfect appetite, maybe they want to just eat more healthily. Um, this one was published um, two years ago now. It's called Healthy Eating for Cancer Survivors. And again, it's free through your local hospital. And this has all of the World Cancer Research Fund um, recommendations, which will be considered the, the, the best available scientific evidence, which Amy might touch on later. Um, so this is all healthy eating, portion control for people who want to eat well, lots more fiber, less fat, um, less salt, you know, just this is how we should all be eating really, I guess. And um, so that's just a selection of about 50 healthy recipes um, for, for patients that are or maybe in the survivorship phases of their treatment, they're in remission. Maybe their doctor has told them, I'd like you to follow a healthy eating diet. So those are just some kind of free resources. Um, but also, of course, you can access the dietitian if you want more individual one-to-one -one advice as well. I think it's probably a good time to highlight um, the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. With you just touched on there that you should ask to be referred to a dietitian and all of the resources that IFA has referred to have been prepared by dietitians. So just for nutritionists, it's it's not a protected title where it is a protected title and um, dietitian is and it's um, regulated within Ireland. 
and anybody can call themselves the nutritionists or nutritional therapists. So I think it's very important to be aware of um, the qualifications of the person um, that you're getting your advice from or the person who may be writing um, a book or an article and to really look into see how, what knowledge they have to be able to give you advice or to think about whether you should take that advice on board. So um, a lot of things to look for are for if, if it is a nutritionist, um, we do have voluntary registration for nutritionists, which is quite difficult to get. So if, if you were going to be reading something by a nutritionist, I'd be looking for, for those qualifications. But really, as Aoife said, if you're going through the cancer journey, um, a dietitian is, is the, the optimal person to see. Uh, the next question we have in is, are there different considerations at different stages of the of the, the cancer treatment? I think you referred to that that Eve in in the beginning. Um, Amy, have the, what 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 is what does your research um, indicate in relation to the the different stages of the cancer treatment? Sort of uh, as to what what's the best way of of, of tackling it for a patient. So uh, my research area is a bit more in the background to EFAS in terms of um, the evidence. So um, I work a lot on a large cohort study, um, which are studies that uh, will recruit large numbers of people from the general population, collect a lot of data about what they eat, their body composition, uh, lifestyle choices, health factors, um, also um, biological samples like blood, urine, and stuff like that. And then uh, in the cohort studies, we tend to, to follow them for long periods of time and then record any health events they have. So if they've been diagnosed with cancer, um, what treatment they might be getting, and then um, any mortality or, or recovery in the long term. And so what we do then is we look at the frequency of the disease and we use statistics to um, analyze the relationship between that and then the type of diet they're consuming. So it might be what they're eating, what they're drinking. It might be the overall diet and it could be their body composition, the amount of physical activity they do. And then that allows us to look at the patterns in those um, things that we're measuring to see what can give the best outcome in terms of reducing risk, but also in terms of um, improving survivorship. So those kind of studies are the studies that go on to inform the World Cancer Research Fund um, international recommendations that Aoife referred to there. And so what the World Cancer Research Fund does is it carries out um, a process called a systematic review. And so systematic review is when we go out and we search all of the published information that exists on a topic, and we bring all that information together so that we can look at the evidence as a totality rather than as individual studies or, or articles. And that allows us to give the best informed evidence um, that we can for those recommendations. And, and, and literally in relation to research, I mean, does the research cover, you know, we, we oftentimes hear in relation to even non-cancer diets and, and nutrition in relation to the Mediterranean type, type of food mm -hmm. and style. And, and, and the other issue, is, it's a question, uh, does the cancer research sort of support that, that, that the Mediterranean type of a diet sort of um, is is good for cancer patients as well as for you know the the normal type of uh, dietary issues that that most families have. I mean the other thing that arises, and I'm not sure how how it comes up in this, you know when you talk about a cancer patient, it perhaps is one person in a family. So to a large degree, most families, 
it, it becomes next to impossible to have a separate diet for every person mm-hmm. in the family. It just becomes too much of a challenge. But on the yeah. other hand, I suspect, and I'm just asking whether the the diets, Eva, that that you uh, have 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 published, whether they they would be again suitable and popular for general families as distinct from just just non-cancer patients. Yeah, so it's always a challenge. I guess if if someone is doing okay on treatment and maybe they have a little bit of extra weight and they're eating fine, they need to follow a healthy eating diet. And that the evidence for that would come from the World Cancer Research Fund, which Amy mentioned. And it's broadly around, you know, trying to maintain a healthy body weight, staying physically active, eating more fruits and vegetables, and, you know, eating more plant-based foods, cutting back on things like alcohol and red meat. And that we actually review all of these in lay language in this free book. So there's kind of eight core guidelines. Um, and I just touched on some of them there. We've read them all in lay language at the beginning of this. And um, the reports Amy mentioned, they're absolutely huge. If you go onto the WCRF website and look at those expert documents, they're five and 600 pages long. They're a huge scientific document documents with chapters on each, almost each food group and each lifestyle measure. So it would be overwhelming for, for I think, a patient without any scientific background to delve in, into those. So they try and translate it into simple language that people can understand. So if a patient is living in a family environment where they've been told to follow a healthy eating diet, that's the per- that's a perfect diet. And this is how we should all be eating because this type of, of eating pattern is associated with reduced risks of heart disease and, 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 um, and diabetes as well. So in one sense, if the person is following healthy eating, then great, the whole family can do it. Where the challenge comes is if you've got someone in the family who, for instance, has a really terrible appetite and doesn't even want the smell of food in the house and feels sick um, and nauseous. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, quite detailed research done on this now describing the home environment of trying to care for somebody who's losing lots of weight and is struggling eating. And it causes huge amounts of anxiety um, and, and worry for carers and family members because they're watching their loved one literally fade away and they're trying to cook for them and they're not eating it and they see that as almost a rejection of their love and it, it can be very a very difficult um experience to have someone in the family who's really struggling to eat and, and often it can signify that the person is deteriorating and, and not responding to treatment if they're losing lots of weight as well and it's particularly problematic if someone has swallowing difficulties as well maybe they're on a liquidized diet or a pureed diet or a minced and moist diet um, so it does take a lot of care and consideration from the spouse or a daughter or a son who's willing to, you know, really try and cook food that's appetizing. Um, maybe it needs to be more bland. Maybe it needs to be extra spicy if they've lost their taste. I mean, it's, it, it varies a lot. Um, but certainly we wouldn't be putting the whole family on a high protein, high calorie diet because they'd all start gaining weight. So, yeah. So a lot of these recipes in, in the books for patients that are malnourished um, are suitable for freezing. So there's lots of very nourishing kind of soups and, and smoothies and that that you can freeze and kind of defrost a portion if you like, if you don't want to cook every day. Um, dietitians also can give those kind of patients... Um, different kinds of supplements. And I've just a few samples here, but these are little protein gels. So in this little sachet, there's 15 grams of protein and it's tasteless. So that can be added to food. And um, this is a powder you can add it into like mashed potato, porridge, soup, and it's like eating another medium potato. It's a pot of jelly. It's got 20 grams of protein in it. It comes in different flavors. Or um, sometimes dietitians can use these kind of supplements as well. They're little ready-to-use drinks, which are very high in calories and protein. So in a family scenario where someone maybe isn't eating so well, these can be handy because the patient can take these um, as well as trying their best to eat eat what's on offer at, at the 
as part of family meals. But it's certainly a challenge when when there's one person in the family struggling with appetite. Um, it's somewhat easier if people uh, if people are unhealthy eating. Another another question that has come in is where can patients turn to to get accurate information from reliable expert sources? So I think we've just mentioned quite a few of the sources where people can get information. So all of the cookbooks that Aoife has mentioned are available online for free and um, through Big through Cancer Research. And um, I believe a number of them are available through the HSC, which Aoife said as well. And um, there's also the World Cancer Research Fund um, UK website, which is very accessible as well. And um, the public in the in the way that the language is written. Um, they're two really good sources. But of course, uh, asking to have a discussion with the dietitian that's part of, of your medical team is something Aoife also already mentioned uh, as being a good source of information. So I, I think just staying away from um, Dr. Google, as they say, um, and then just um, sharing those resources with your family as well. Because I think often we've seen in research and that I've done and that Aoife has done is that People can get a lot of advice from friends and family that's really well-meaning um, and people want to do the best to, to support their family. Um, but often it's it's not just the cancer patient that needs access to those information, it's the support network around that person that, that also needs access um, to that information. And that can be, uh, as you mentioned, very something very difficult to navigate in a family situation where different information is coming at you and, and you know, you're in a vulnerable position. So definitely the, the resources there that Aoife has already shown you, the World Cancer Research Fund um, are two, two very good resources to tap into. The other question that arises on that, do you know, Aoife, are you aware, or Amy, are you aware, is there any, what would you call, support group in Ireland for, for people who are on cancer in relation to dietary, that that's, or dietary or, or nutrition that that people can talk to sort of with a certain amount of confidence that they're not talking to quacks in other words because sometimes cancer patients oftentimes in sharing with others who are in, going on the same journey can can get a certain amount of support or confidence in dealing with the thing just talking to somebody who perhaps is going through the same journey uh, I'm not talking about Dr. Google now, I'm just talking about some support groups, whether they're available in either cancer care groups around the country or, or attached to the, the Irish, cancer, Irish Cancer Society. I, I don't know, I'm just asking the question because I'm not aware and I haven't been in that position, but I'm just wondering whether you have any experience or knowledge of that. Um, I see a lot going on on social media. I follow a lot of kind of prominent cancer patients who are quite vocal about the treatments they're having and some of them are into complementary and alternative treatments and others aren't and um, there's a lot on Twitter as well um, and I, I personally don't have time to spend all day on these forums correcting misinformation and 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 you know a lot of it is is done people mean well but uh, they're just giving out completely incorrect information lots of fads um, kind of tend to get sent around social media um, the Irish Cancer Society have a booklet on uh, diet and cancer as well. Breakthrough have a series of books. The National Cancer Control Programme have plans to develop more nutrition information on their website. Um, and we're, we're trying to, at the moment, we're in the late stages of developing a website, which we hope would be a one-stop shop for nutrition information, because that's what's missing at the moment in Ireland. We have no kind of website where we've 
all the accurate nutrition information in the one place that's kind of endorsed by, you know, oncologists and dietitians and, and, and nutritionists that work in the field. Um, so we're trying to work on that on that at the moment to develop a website that will be hosted on the UCC website but that have all of that information, some videos and, and kind of interactive things as well. But as for patient groups, if they set up their own WhatsApp groups or Facebook groups, you know, you're open to getting any information from anyone. And even, even two patients with the same cancer can have a very different journey through their treatment and experience very different nutritional problems. So I would think always go back to your medical team. If you have concerns about, you know, losing weight or muscle or gaining weight, whatever it is, talk to your oncologist. They'll put you in touch with, with the dietitian working with their team. That person will have access to all your blood tests, all your medical records, um, and they'll be able to give you the best advice suitable for you. Um, but I would, maybe try and stay away from some of the some of the stuff that goes on on social media because it's not it's not uh, it's not regulated in any way or moderated by any qualified people and and you're you're open to getting any kinds any kind of information then and a lot of it i i i just sometimes when i see it i just feel so sad at, at what what is been pushed at patients and um, it's completely wrong you know patients being told to juice all their food and, and not eat any solids or go completely organic and have a huge cost associated with that or try out these fatty diets where they take out all carbohydrates and all sugars and patients can feel really miserable on some of those fad diets um, and they can really lose a lot of weight and a lot of muscle and it could end up harming harming them and harming their response to treatment. So I would just be wary of those support groups when they're giving out kind of medical advice and nutritional advice because not one will fit, one advice won't fit all and you're wide open to being exposed to, to myths and misinformation there. That's very important for, for us all to, to realise that, you know, keep away from, from, from the, the, non, the non-reliable sources. And in fact, as you say, social media, Twitter, all of that, it's a whole new phenomena. And the fact that it reads okay doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. And, and and it applies to yourself. So it's important that you go to the 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 the, the professionals for the advice. And to that extent, um, you know, where where can patients go to to get uh, to access dietitians and and nutritionists support? Where, where where can the is it first of all is it available nationally? Uh, and and can can people access it even even if they have completed sort of let's say their treatment in in the hospitals that they're they're post post hospital treatment how can they how can they they get it because in a lot of cases post post treatment in a lot of cases people are very much on their own they don't know where to turn to their own gp doesn't have the doesn't have the time or the information so it's a question where 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 can they start looking Okay, so on treatment, you absolutely should really, I would advise you only see a dietitian because as part of their training, they will have completed 1000 hours of training in a hospital environment with patients. Um, So they're they're trained on doing one-to-one dietary advice and the ones working in oncology will have specialized in that field. So if you're on chemotherapy or if you're having, you know, major cancer surgery, if you're recovering from, if you're on radiation, um, I think it's most important that you, um, as Amy said at the beginning, the title nutritionist is not a regulated title and there are many people operating private businesses as nutritionists who don't have any clinical experience or training certainly in cancer so um if you're on treatment whether it's surgery radiation or chemotherapy i would ask to go to the dietitian affiliated with your team if you're finished treatment and in remission and that's when you know if you want to go to see obviously it's hard access dietitians there are not that many of them in ireland 
um, there's about one dietitian for every four and a half thousand patients with cancer, which is a terrible ratio, really. It's it's the same all over the world, but it's it's particularly bad in Ireland. So it is difficult to access a dietitian, but if you're struggling and having problems, you will absolutely be seen. And um, the, the gap is, I guess, dietitians don't tend, they tend to spend all their time with patients on treatment who are having problems eating. And so we don't generally tend to get around those that are well and are finished treatment um, and who maybe want to lose some weight and be healthier. So that's when you could go to um, either a dietitian in private practice. And many of those, um, you can get some reimbursement of the fee through VHI or LAIR or whatever it is. Um, or you could go to a registered nutritionist. And again, making sure that they're registered with say the Association for Nutritionists in the UK or with the Nutrition Society or that you check out their, their qualifications before you part with part with your money for, for, for paying for consultations. Um, so people who are doing well or finished treatment, that those are the kind of people who tend to go online and tend to read into a lot of the myths and fads. And um, so again, pointing you back to the, the websites where the most accurate information would be, would be Cancer Research UK, the American Cancer Society, or the World Cancer Research Fund. Th those websites would give you the most accurate information um, if, you're a if you're a survivor and completely finished treatment. Thank you very much. I have got got a, a question in here now. Lucy, what is it? Medication after breast cancer can contribute to decline in bone density. My doctor used to recommend calcium plus vitamin D3, but last time she said to stop the calcium and only take vitamin D. Why is this? And I'm worried uh, I'm not getting enough calcium in my diet alone. I don't know why she was told not to take um, calcium. So sometimes women having treatment for breast cancer can go into uh, premature menopause. So they can become menopause in, in their 30s or younger and even in their 40s. And so their bone mass can, can, bone mass tends to decline quite quickly after normal menopause anyway. But if it happens at an earlier age, obviously your bone mass can decline, decline faster and at a younger age. And um, so generally you will be prescribed vitamin D and calcium by your medical team. So maybe, maybe question why the calcium was stopped. I'm not too sure why that was the case. I'm sorry. It's hard to know and comment on an individual case. Um, but in terms of getting calcium from the diet and vitamin D from the diet, I would encourage you to buy fortified milk if you can. You've probably seen super milk in a lot of the, the supermarkets, the red packet milk, it has extra calcium and vitamin D added to it. Um, you can also get calcium enriched yogurts. You also get calcium and cheese. So trying to get, you know, three or more portions of, of um, from that shelf of the food pyramid, the, the dairy shelf. And a glass would be, you know, those disposable um, plastic cups that you get at like a water cooler, that would be considered one portion from the from that from that shelf of the food pyramid for, for calcium and vitamin D. So you certainly can get in enough calcium and vitamin D from diet, particularly if you look for fortified um, fortified foods. But most people in Ireland do need to take a vitamin D supplement in the winter months because we don't get a lot of sunshine. One of the things I suppose as, as, as cancer patients or even as normal things, there's such a, there's such a large sort of... Um, support uh, or at least recommendation for dietary supplements and different vitamins it, it can be very hard to actually know you know on your own what, what what's sensible to do rather than uh, rather than um, taking up this because it's a lot of these dietary supplements are, are um, promoted very heavily on, on the newspapers and on the television so you you end up you're almost sucked into it on the basis you're saying i'm neglect if i don't if i don't take up on some of these where in a lot of cases you're possibly creating more problems. 
Yeah, one of the guidelines from the World Cancer Research Fund is not to take vitamin and mineral supplements, believe it or not, to either prevent cancer or, yeah, mostly to prevent cancer. Um, there have been a number of large trials, which Amy could talk much better than me about, where patients have taken high doses of individual vitamins and actually they found that those people have higher risks of cancer. So the general recommendation is not to rely on getting vitamins and minerals from capsule format to try and get it from food. Um, so with the exception of vitamin D, um, which does need to be taken, particularly in the winter months, because we, we are at such a northern latitude, we don't get enough sunlight. Some cancer patients on treatment may be, may be told to take iron supplements, for example, if they suffer with anemia, low blood counts. Others, um, for example, anybody who's had their stomach removed for stomach cancer will be will have to go on vitamin B12 for the rest of their life. So there are individual circumstances where we have to have to recommend individual vitamins and minerals, but it's done obviously on a case-by-case basis. But across the board, and a lot of the time as well, when patients are on active treatment, if they're not eating particularly well, their doctor may tell them just to take a normal multivitamin and mineral. But in general, we would hope that people would not have to take those, that they would get vitamins and minerals from, from the food that they eat and particularly, you know, fruits and vegetables and dairy products, like we just mentioned as well, um, kind of nourishing wholesome foods as opposed to obviously processed foods um, where we wouldn't really get much um, vitamins and minerals from. What dietary advice can you give a cancer patient several years post-treatment who, is, who are menopausal and gaining weight? So that's a healthy eating diet. Um, you know, um, the vast majority of people in Ireland now are carrying a little bit extra weight, even in non-cancer populations. And, um, you know, people are at 60% or more of the population are, are carrying a little bit of extra weight. And so it's the same healthy eating pattern for cancer prevention as it is for cancer survivors. So it's all about... Um, trying to balance the amount of food you're taking in and the amount how, how active you are. So in that free book, Health Eating for Cancer Survivors, what we've done with those recipes is that we've just taken everyday recipes that um, people like to eat. So there's like lasagna, there's shepherd's pie, there's all stews and our soups. And, and we've just brought the calories down. So we've controlled the portion sizes um, and we've brought the fat content down and we've brought the fiber content up. So more vegetables to kind of increase bulk. Um, and so these are all kind of calorie controlled. And there's another book as well. And that, this one now is... is um, is on sale, but the proceeds all go to Breakthrough Cancer. It's called the Anti-Cancer Cookbook. It's a longer version of this. It's about 150 recipes in this. So it's a proper hardback cookbook um, and it's available on, on Book Depository or Amazon. And this is a whole selection of recipes all based on the World Cancer Research Fund, which are all kind of energy controlled where we try to keep the energy down, the fat down, the fiber up, the salt down. And this is kind of how we should all really be eating. So if you're finished treatment um, and you're in menop you're menopausal and you're finding you've gained weight, um, that's kind of a nice healthful plan and healthy way to eat that's based entirely on the World Cancer Research Fund recommendations. So that's the kind of diet I'd recommend. It's just normal healthy eating. There's nothing magical about it. Um, it's not a fad. Um, we're not asking you to avoid any particular food groups like some fad diets do. It's just normal healthy eating, but watching portion sizes and trying to increase the amount of plant-based foods and, and, and fruits and vegetables and fiber. Okay, that's great, Eva. Uh, thank you very much. There's just, there's just one final one before we go. Uh, it's just, I'm hoping it's easy to, to answer. What is the advice on skim milk? Is fortified option better? 
Um, so skimmed milk is usually 1% fat, um, low fat milk is 2% and whole milk is 3%. So all milk is low fat because anything less than 5% is low fat. So whole milk gets a bad reputation, but it's not that bad of food, you know? Um, so low fat milk is 2%, skimmed milk is 1%. There's 1% difference in the fat. Just check the package to see if it's, um, if it's fortified because it, it may have, you're hopefully buying a, a milk that has extra calcium and vitamin D added to it. Um, just so you're going to get more for, for what you're taking in. Um, but those milks tend to be a little bit more pricey, but I personally think they're worth it for the for the nutrients that you're, you're getting, um, they're just present in higher quantities, and it, it could save it could save you taking a capsule, um, vitamin, calcium and vitamin D capsules if you can get it in through food. Okay, thank you very much, Eva. We're coming to the end of our of, of our chat. Um, I'd like to thank Eva and Amy for sharing their experience and knowledge to 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 all, and I hope you've sort of we've all learned something from it. Um, and I'd like to thank Lane and Amanda and Sheila for, for sort of organizing this. But I'd like to thank you all for having joined us. And I hope you can join us on, on, on our next chat. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Patient Voice and Cancer Research Fireside Chat podcast. A big thank you to our speakers and patient participants today. Subscribe and follow the Patient Voice in Cancer Research wherever you get your podcasts.